Good morning, everybody. I'm so sorry that my family and I cannot be with you this morning. Nevertheless, we shall continue with our series in the book of Esther. This morning, we're looking at Haman's rage, and that's in Esther chapter 5, verses 6 through to 14. Last week, we considered the very generous and no doubt highly exaggerated offer of King Ahasuerus of up to half his kingdom to Queen Esther, when she bravely came into the inner court of the palace to plead on behalf of the Jews. She risked being put to death for approaching the king because she had not been called. In response to the king's generous offer, Esther did not seize the moment to intercede for the Jews. Instead, she invited the king and his prime minister, Haman, to come that same day to a banquet that she had prepared for them. Today, amongst other things, we shall consider the behaviour of two men after the banquet, Haman and Esther's adoptive father, Mordecai. Let's read verses 6 through to 8 in chapter 5. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favour in the sight of the king, and if it please the king, to grant my petition, and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king have said. In verse 6, we once again see the king offering up to half his kingdom to Esther, as he had already done in verse 3, when she first approached him. It's as if he knew that she had not risked her life coming to him simply to invite him and Haman to a banquet. In response to the king's generous offer, Esther invited him and Haman to come to another banquet on the morrow. At that point, you'd have to wonder if Esther really was prayerfully and patiently looking to God for guidance and for the right time to plead on behalf of the Jews, or if she had simply lost her nerve, which is not beyond the realms of possibility. Maybe you've been there and done it, when you've committed to the Lord something that requires a considerable amount of courage, and still, when the time appears to have come to do it, even though you've prayed about it, you've nevertheless lost your nerve and wriggled out of it. As for Esther not pleading for the Jews when she seemed to have an opportunity at that first banquet, Spurgeon said, For the second time the king invites her to ask what she wills to the half of his kingdom. Why, when the king was in so kind a spirit, did not Esther speak? He was charmed with her beauty, and his royal word was given to deny her nothing, 
why not speak out? But no, she merely asks that he and a Haman will come to another banquet of wine tomorrow. O daughter of Abraham, what an opportunity hast thou lost? Wherefore didst thou not plead for thy people? Their very existence hangs upon thy entreaty, and the king has said, What wilt thou? And yet thou art backward. Was it timidity? It is possible. Did she think that Haman stood too high in the king's favour for her to prevail? It would be hard to say. Some of us are very unaccountable, but on that woman's unaccountable silence, far more was hanging than appears at first sight. Doubtless she longed to bring out her secret, but the words came not. God was in it. It was not the right time to speak, and therefore she was led to put off her disclosure. I dare say she regretted it, and wondered when she should be able to come to the point, but the Lord knew best. As it turned out, before the second banquet took place the next day, a lot of things would happen, the details of which occupy the whole of chapter 6. Not least of all, Haman's archenemy, Mordecai, would be honoured by the king. Therefore, even if Esther did lose her nerve at that first banquet, the time was not right for her to say anything to the king anyway. It's just as well that God's purposes being carried out are not dependent upon our bravery. His will shall be done, not because of us, but in spite of us, and they will be carried out in his way, in his time, and for his glory. Well, have a look now at verses 9 and 10. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up, nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, or refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends, and Zeresh, his wife. Esther's adoptive father, Mordecai, was a palace servant, and his place was in the king's gate. However, when he wore sackcloth and ashes, and he cried with a loud and bitter cry because of the decree to kill and destroy all of the Jews, it was seen in chapter 4 and verse 2 that he was not permitted to enter into the king's gate. But now in chapter 5 and verse 9, he is back at his post, in the king's gate. That must surely mean that Mordecai had now laid aside his mourning clothes and he had resumed his duties, despite the fact that the death sentence still loomed large over the Jews. Not only did Mordecai resume his duties, but also he continued to do the very thing that earned him and all the other Jews a death sentence 
in the first place. He still refused to show respect for Haman the Agagite. If anything, he now showed even more disrespect when you bear in mind that back in chapter 3 and verse 5, he refused to bow down to Haman. But now in chapter 5 and verse 9, he refused to stand up for him. That really is something when you consider that in a courtroom, everyone stands up when the judge walks in. Even if you've never been in a courtroom and done it yourself, you may well have seen it on television on Judge Judy. Haman was far more important than a judge. He was second only to King Ahasuerus in the Medo-Persian Empire. Even so, Mordecai refused to stand up for him. Haman was as pleased as punch and no doubt full of self-importance when he left the first banquet that had been prepared by Queen Esther for the king and for himself. Contrast that with how he was how he was after Mordecai's refusal to get up. According to verse 9, he was full of indignation. In other words, his joy turned to rage. Haman couldn't stand the thought of Mordecai's continuous refusal to honour him. His ego was inflated like a balloon that was ready to burst. People who live like Haman, full of self-importance, will live perpetually on Haman's emotional roller coaster, soaring high when honoured and crashing down when not. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins strips away all that self-importance and the roller coaster rides of joyful highs and indignant lows that come with it. According to verse 10, Haman refrained himself. In other words, he restrained himself and he held back. Held back from what? From inflicting some grievous punishment on Mordecai right there and then. Suffice to say that it would not have been appropriate for the Prime Minister to have been seen by the King's servants acting in such a rash way so as to damage his reputation and expose a very ugly side to him. It would no doubt have been important for Haman not to let the mask slip and to continue to appear to be a dignified and reasonable man. Never mind the fact that he had already arranged by royal decree to kill all the Jews, and never mind the fact that he would very soon arrange to have gallows built to hang Mordecai. Even so, Haman did not want to show himself to the people as the monster that he really was. Although Haman managed to refrain himself before men, and hide his wickedness, he nevertheless would one day, in his case the very next day, have to answer to God the righteous judge, the one who sees all things and who knows all things. As it is written in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, It is appointed unto men 
once to die, but after this the judgment. What the wicked Haman did in refraining himself is typical of anyone who has not turned to Jesus as a repentant sinner. Even as I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't help thinking about another wicked man who refrains himself. In fact, he comes across as a gently spoken government minister, and he masquerades as a champion of women's health care. However, behind that restrained facade is a man who is largely responsible for the death and destruction of an untold number of unborn babies. This is how it is with the fallen human nature. All seemingly upright people who have never shown repentance towards God and have never shown faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are hiding behind a mask of respectability when the reality is that they are clothed in the filthy rags of their own self-righteousness and they are hypocrites. More generally, it doesn't mean to say that everyone has a rage like Haman's, hidden away in their hearts, but you can be sure that everyone has some nastiness festering in their hearts, hearts which are veritable cesspools of depravity. Even though people may do an excellent job of restraining themselves and hiding it from the public eye, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. As the Lord Jesus Christ said in Mark chapter 7 verse 21 through to 23, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. And God sees all of it. Nothing is hidden from him. As it is written in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest or made visible in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do or give an account of our lives. That verse makes me think of the judge of all the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 14, has eyes as a flame of fire. All of you who are not trusting in Christ understand very clearly that his eyes can see right through your mask and into your wicked heart. Therefore, show repentance towards God for your sins, including your hidden sins, and trust in the sinless Lord Jesus Christ as the one who was obedient to God's laws on your behalf and who sacrificially paid the price for your sins at the cross. From then on, you will have the Holy Spirit sanctifying you as you read the word of God, which is pure 
and unadulterated truth. As you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, God will work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. The work of God to conform you to the image of your Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ will be ongoing and it will be progressive. Even so, your acceptance before God will always be in his beloved Son. And even in your deathbed, you will be the first to acknowledge that you are a sinner saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and who gave himself for you. We'll look at verse 10 through to 13. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends, and Zeresh his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches, and the multitude of his children, and all the things wherein the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman said moreover, Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself, and tomorrow I am invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. We'll read verse 14 as well. Then said Zeresh his wife, and all his friends unto him, let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high. Fifty, that's seventy-five feet high. That's over twice the height of a house. And tomorrow speak thou unto the king, that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. When Haman arrived home from the banquet, he gathered together his wife and his friends so that he could tell them about his riches, the multitude of his children, his promotion above all the other nobles, and his invitation to not one but two banquets, prepared by the queen for none other than the king and himself. My first thoughts were that surely his friends and especially his wife, already knew all those things, apart from the invitation to a second banquet. It would seem that he loved the sound of his own voice as he boasted and as he blew his trumpet. He was like a famous actor who is so full of self-importance that his big regret in life is not being able to sit in the theatre audience to watch and listen to himself live on stage. Despite all of the riches and power that Haman had, look again at what he said in verse 13. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. They are the words of a very proud and boastful man, 
who was nevertheless unable to derive any pleasure from anything, and that was because just one man did not honour him. As we've already seen, despite all of Haman's privileges, he was consumed with anger. Haman would not have had an obsession with Mordecai had he, by the grace of God, humbled himself before the throne of God's grace and served the Lord with fear and trembling. However, instead of doing that, Haman took the advice of his wife and friends and he had gallows made to hang Mordecai on. I like what Matthew Henry said. He said, Many call the proud happy who display pomp and make a show, but this is a mistaken thought. Many poor cottagers feel far less uneasiness than the rich with all their fancied advantages around them. The man who knows not Christ is poor though he be rich, because he is utterly destitute of that which is alone true riches. Finally, Haman was full of indignation just because Mordecai did not stand, nor did he move for him. Although Haman was nothing more than a wicked man, he had, in a sense, set himself up as a god figure. There is, however, someone who is fully deserving of praise, worship and adoration. His name is Jesus, and he really is God. In Psalm 2 and verse 12, it is written of Jesus, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. That psalm was written by King David about a thousand years before the Son of God came into the world, and it tells us that Jesus the Lamb of God is angry with kings and judges of the earth, such as Haman, who do not acknowledge his greatness and who do not worship and adore him. More than that, Revelation chapter 6 speaks of the wrath of the Lamb being directed towards not just kings and judges of the earth, but all classes of people. For example, in Revelation chapter 6 verse 15 through to 17 it is written And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman that's every slave and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the, day, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Therefore, every one of you will do well to bow down before Jesus and worship him, believing that he carried away your sins at the cross with a loud voice, say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and honour and glory 
and blessing. Amen.